Hi, this is Roy Shoman, and welcome again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Well, today is Saturday. Yesterday was the Feast of St. Joseph, and I want to dedicate today's show to St. Joseph, who was certainly a just man, uh, and if I can point out, he actually was a Jew. <laughs> so he was a Jew, and he died a Jew, um, since the church was only founded on Pentecost, and he died before the crucifixion. And so that's the only link I can make between the theme of the show, which is that the Catholic Church is the continuation of Judaism, and St. Joseph. But I did definitely want to honor him. So what I'm going to do today is um, actually most of today's show is going to consist of a recording of a talk I gave yesterday on the Feast of St. Joseph. So if you hear me say today the Feast of St. Joseph, it's because the recording is just from yesterday. That also means I won't be in a position to take any calls um, because the recording will fill up the whole hour. And the bulk of what I'm speaking about is drawn from this wonderful book called The Life and Glories of St. Joseph by Edward Healy Thompson. It's published by Tan Books. But um, what makes the book so wonderful is it's not the theories or conclusions of the author. He just assembled uh, quotes and statements from the church fathers and from various saints about St. Joseph, and he just kind of cobbled them together into the book. So the authority behind what's being said is not the authority of somebody in the year, you know, whatever, 2020, theorizing about St. Joseph, but it goes all the way back to St. Jerome and St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Bernard and uh, so forth. Really some real church fathers in there. So with that, I am going to shift over and just shift over to the recording of the talk on St. Joseph. Um, and you'll note in the talk that a, a very major theme in the talk is actually the virtue and purity of St. Joseph and the impossibility that he might have suspected any misbehavior behind the um, Immaculate Conception. Uh, anyway, you'll hear that in the talk, but but that's really, really, really the most, in my mind, the most important point is to nail shut forever the idea that St. Joseph could have suspected his bride or his fiance of any misbehavior, which seems to me to be a, a horribly... Um, sacrilegious thought. And it, not just me, but apparently St. Jerome and all of these church fathers also thought that was completely not within consideration. So anyway, with that, let me go to the recording. Um, and I will, I will be doing some very beautiful reading from um, uh, pretty much church father type sources about St. Joseph with a lot of really good information about St. Joseph. Um, uh, just to cut to the chase, I guess, the um, the first few centuries after Christ, it was understood that St. Joseph was a young man 
um, there were there was artwork from the second and third centuries. Some of it showed him very young, and some of it showed him in the prime of life, what we would think of as the thirties. I have um, been using as a source, and I'll read from this in a moment. This really excellent book. It's put out by Tan Books. It's uh, The Life and Glories of St. Joseph. I know it's a little late for his feast day there. The author is Edward Healy Thompson, but it's he's not really the author. It's really a cut-and-paste job, a collection of, um, of uh, accounts of St. Joseph and commentary about St. Joseph drawn um, mostly from the classical saints like St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Bernard and, and also some church fathers and so forth. Anyway, the consensus of Josephologists is definitely that St. Joseph was not an um, elderly man when he married Mary, but that he was enough older than her. And this, that, this last comment I'm going to make just comes from Anne Catherine Emmerich. But he was enough older than her that um, he was teased a little bit about having such a young bride, which, of course, would be the case if he was, you know, even, let's say, 28 and she was 16 or 15. And, um, of course, she was totally in love with him. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment from this reading in here. Okay, uh, and I, now I'm going to read um, because I want, I, I tell you, I have an agenda here. Because I want to uh, put to rest this horrible image that St. Joseph was suspicious of the virtue of the Blessed Virgin Mary when he discovered that she was expecting a child. I, I mean, I, 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 I don't see how that can go down easily for somebody who takes these things seriously, basically, you know, who, who is pious in their faith because, because, I mean, the Blessed Virgin Mary is so blindingly pure that nobody could suspect her of anything dishonest, number one. Number two, the holiest person who ever lived, short of the Blessed Virgin Mary and Jesus, is St. Joseph. So it's hardly in his nature to be suspicious, especially of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And number three, everybody was expecting the coming of the Messiah around then. That's in the Gospels. Remember, they said uh, John the Baptist to see the Messiah because everyone knew the Messiah was due around then. And everyone knew that the Messiah would be born of a virgin birth. That's the prophecy that's in Isaiah. So Joseph was not an idiot if somebody who hadn't had relations with a man was expecting a child, it certainly looked like that was the expected virgin birth of the Messiah to come. So, okay, so reading from The Life and Glories of St. Joseph, um, put together by Edward Healy Thompson and uh, published by Tan Books. Um, and he, he writes himself in the preface that it's a, basically a cut and paste job. Nothing is original with him. It is the common opinion of doctors of the church that when the Blessed Trinity gave our saint a spouse to marry, 
No other man could have been found so like to her. Both were in so high a grade of perfection that even as there would have been a great and unsuitable disproportion between the virgin and any other spouse, so also would there have been a signal inequality between Joseph and any other spouse. St. Bernardine of Siena says that there were never, ever two spouses so like each other as were Mary and Joseph. Their equality consisted in this, that Joseph was so exceedingly like to Mary that he had none like to him among men. Inferior to the Blessed Virgin alone, he was superior to all others besides. In that superiority, therefore, they were partners. But what a singular glory was this to be so like to the Blessed Virgin as to possess in great measure common privileges with her and to have a love of God of the same character as her own. Now, if you stop to think about it, if if God loves the Blessed Virgin Mary in a very, very special particular way, and if God has a profound reverence and love for marriage, do you really think he would have assigned an unworthy spouse to her? And do you really think that anyone would be worthy of her if he weren't the most virtuous and holy man that ever lived? I think it's just kind of a logical deduction. Anyway, continuing, certainly we need no greater proof of the eminent sanctity of Joseph than is implied in the choice made of him by God to be the husband of Mary. We have only to look at her to know what he must have been. The Blessed Trinity, in determining to give to Mary this companion, determined also that he should be a wondrous copy of her perfections and endowed with her incomparable qualities, while for his greater honor the Trinity decreed that he himself should meritoriously cooperate in the acquisition of them. How great, then, was the honor which the Blessed Trinity conferred on Joseph. This marriage, having been decreed in the secret councils of the triune God, it was moreover to receive on earth the highest possible sanction by becoming matter of deliberation and determination on the part of the heads of the Jewish Church, the chief priests and doctors of the law, as we shall presently see. Okay, anyway, so think of what is being said here, that of course the choice of Joseph was the most perfect choice that the Most Holy Trinity could make. And of course um, they chose the most perfect partner possible for the Blessed Virgin Mary, which means the man closest to her in sanctity. But because of the importance of this and because of the dignity of this, they wanted the choice to be ratified by the highest authority of the church which was the Jewish high priesthood, essentially. So rather than leaving it to human agency, so to speak, that Mary and Joseph should be fixed up together, so to speak, God chose that the match should be made by the Jewish priesthood, by the official authorities. So let me get on to the betrothal of, um, of uh, Mary and Joseph. There is general agreement among the fathers and doctors of the church 
that Joseph was pointed out as the spouse of Mary by a marvelous sign from heaven. Um, Supported by some fathers and many sacred writers and resting also upon popular belief, the high priest, divinely inspired, renewed the proof to which Moses had recourse when it was a question of the high priesthood of Aaron, God saying to him, Whoever of these I shall choose, his rod shall blossom. You see, so basically what's going on here is that when when Moses had to choose who would be high priest, um, God said to Moses, have all of the candidates cut off a twig or a a branch, a stick, and um, submit it. And the one of those sticks that bursts into blossom is the one I choose. And therefore, for the high priest to choose the spouse of the Blessed Virgin Mary, God used the same mechanism. All the unmarried men of the race of David, among them being Joseph, uh, were summoned to appear, and the high priest had each of them bring a rod with his name inscribed upon it. And whoever's rod should be found the next day to have blossomed, he it was who should be the spouse of Mary. So it was done, and on the morrow, while the rods of all the rest had remained dry and unfruitful, the rod of Joseph had budded and blossomed and bore leaves and beautiful flowers, and at the same time a white dove was seen to descend and light upon it. And this is why most uh, pictures of St. Joseph, he is holding a stick with blossoms on it. What were the feelings of humble Joseph when he found himself divinely singled out in preference to all these youths of far higher worldly pretensions and for an honor of which he believed himself unworthy? We must be humble like him to conceive how abashed and confounded he stood before the assembly. Yet of one thing we may be sure, he returned fervent thanks to God in his heart He knew that, if called to embrace the married state in espousing Mary, his promise of keeping his virginity was safe. Because it is also the shared view of virtually all the church fathers, I think actually all the church fathers, that Joseph, before meeting Mary, so to speak, had also privately taken a vow of celibacy. Anyway, continuing. We have the authority of a great saint for believing that, uh, that of St. Bridget, to whom Our Lady said, Regarded as most certain that Joseph, before being espoused to me, knew by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that I had made a vow of virginity. St. Thomas Aquinas also, inquiring how it was that Mary consented to be espoused to Joseph when she had made a vow of virginity, thus replies to his own question. The Blessed Virgin, before contracting marriage with Joseph, was certified by God that he had formed a similar resolve, and therefore that she exposed herself to no risk in espousing him. Close quote. We have said that this marriage, having been decreed in heaven, was also to receive the highest earthly sanction in the decision of the heads of the Jewish church. It wanted now the consent of Mary and consent is essential in the contract of matrimony.
the um, okay so now what we have is the, look look at what's happened now um, we have the Holy Trinity chose Joseph the most perfect person possible uh, the most Holy Trinity wanted the choice ratified by the church authorities so it was ratified by the high priesthood through this you know miracle of the rod and so forth so the high priesthood now has chosen Joseph to be the spouse of Mary but God and the high priesthood need Mary's consent because marriage has to be consensual, right? If one of the parties to a marriage hasn't consented to the marriage, it's grounds for an annulment. In other words, the church decrees that no marriage has occurred. So now we've gotten to the final stage of this, which is Mary's consent, which was needed for the marriage. Now, um, we must remember that although Our Lady was only 14 years old at the time of her espousals, she had a mind fully enlightened. Prudence in her had not waited for mature years, and God had infused into her from her tenderest infancy all that knowledge which is ordinarily acquired by study or experience. So she was fully sufficiently mature to make the choice. It would be reprehensible in her to confide herself to the charge of anyone who is not most discreet and faithful, or to trust her purity to a spouse who is not himself as pure as the heavenly spirits, nor to take any man to be the intimate companion of her life whose own standard was not of the most exalted virtue. She knew, in short, that in taking a husband, she was taking a superior, a confidant of her thoughts, a depository of her secrets, a witness of her actions. He must therefore be eminently prudent, faithful and chaste, in a word he must be eminently holy. She knew also that she enjoyed perfect freedom as regarded her consent. So the final proof of St. Joseph's extraordinary virtue and purity is that the Blessed Virgin Mary herself would hardly have consented to the marriage had that not been the case. The two words of consent which the Blessed Virgin pronounced sealed this contract, and at the same time formed a more exalted panegyric than angels and men united could have awarded to our saint, because by this her consent she published that of all men Joseph was the one who deserved to be her spouse, that she had chosen him from all others with full premeditation, employing in the making of that choice all the virtual, all the virtue and supernatural light of her soul, Consider, can, excuse me, together with a full and entire liberty, moved in this election by nothing save the greatness of his merits. Such was the glory accruing to Joseph from Mary's choice of him. Okay, so Mary choosing him was the highest, higher praise of Joseph's virtue than if all of the angels and saints together had, you know, spent eons praising his virtue. Now, now I get to the part that I um, really wanted to hammer home, which is how horrible it is to think that given, given the virtue and purity of these two individuals, St. Joseph thought that, I don't even want to say it. Uh, um, um, anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so let me now uh, skip forward to that. You know, in, in among among 
traditional Josephologists, which is like Mariologists, you know, uh, theologians who study St. Joseph, for centuries and centuries, it was not considered possible to interpret that passage of Scripture as that Joseph was worried about Mary having been unfaithful. Um, the whole story of the engagement, the espousal taking place before they came to live together as man and wife is an outgrowth of trying to support the contention that Joseph suspected Mary of infidelity. The uh, traditional Josephologists in this r reflected in this volume and the church fathers did not have that view and that will come up as I read. Joseph means, so now we're, now we're at, now we're in the early Holy Family with Joseph and the Blessed Virgin Mary married, but Joseph not yet knowing that the Blessed Virgin Mary is expecting. Joseph, meanwhile, in the midst of his labors and his poverty, esteemed himself superlatively rich because in Mary he possessed the rarest and most pre precious treasure on earth. So this is Themis Newlyweds. Her presence was paradise to him. One glance from her countenance of heavenly modesty and of the glory which beamed from it was sufficient to kindle in his soul the fire of divine charity such as burns in a seraph. The sound of her voice, which had awakened to the light both of reason and of grace, the unborn infant, must have made his heart often bound within his bosom. He felt the nearness of God in her and was blessed beyond expression. Thoughts such as these he may have pondered on after their return from Hebron, when one day the fact of the pregnancy of his most pure spouse flashed upon him unmistakably. We will adhere to the gospel words, for nothing is said in vain, quote, She was found with child of the Holy Ghost. By whom, asked St. Jerome, was she found with child? Certainly by no one but Joseph. Okay, so let me just set the place here. So, so according to this understanding of things, um, St. Joseph accompanied the Blessed Virgin Mary to... Elizabeth's. Um, he didn't let her go there alone. And that's also, by the way, uh, what at least Anne Catherine Emmerich saw in her visions. So they were at, uh, they were at Elizabeth's. It's not clear whether St. Joseph came home earlier than, than the Blessed Virgin Mary, but we're picking up where both the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. Joseph are back in Nazareth. And it's at that point where uh, the line in St. Matthew occurs, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now, the um, author here, um, actually not the author here, but St. Jerome, who's a pretty good authority, um, concludes that when St. Matthew says this, the person who found, who discovered that she was with child by the Holy Ghost must be St. Joseph. Uh, continuing, others would never have supposed that she had conceived by divine power, but would have recognized in her condition, in her condition nothing but the natural fruit of a lawful marriage. So you see, the fact that St. Matthew says, quote, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost, 
in St. Jerome's reading of this, and St. Jerome had had the original St. Matthew's Gospel written in, in Hebrew to work with, right? St. Jerome translated, you know, the story it was what, the second century? It was, you know, you know, whatever, 60 years after the death of Christ, 100 years after the death of Christ, he's working with the Gospels and uh, translating them into Latin. And when he comes across this sentence in the original version, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost, it's clear to St. Jerome that the person who found that she was with child found that she was with child by the Holy Ghost that part of what he found was that she was with child by the Holy Ghost. So then St. Jerome asks, well, who would have known that she was with child by the Holy Ghost? The only person who would have known that it was by the Holy Ghost would have been St. Joseph, because he's the only person who knew that they had a strictly celibate marriage. Anyone down the street, when she was found with child, would have just said, oh, she's expecting. She had relations with her husband. They were married, right? So to say, oh my goodness, she's with child by the Holy Ghost, the person who said, oh my goodness, she's with child by the Holy Ghost, had to be St. Joseph. I hope that makes sense. Others would never have supposed that she had conceived by divine power, but would have recognized in her condition nothing but the natural fruit of a lawful marriage. Not so her spouse Joseph. He was well acquainted with the inviolable virginity of Mary, he also well knew what was her unapproachable sanctity. He knew that she lived an angel's life on earth. What wonder then if what he beheld should have suggested to him the thought that possibly she was de the destined mother of the Messiah, the virgin foretold by the prophet Isaiah, who was to bring forth the Emmanuel. Right? That's the only possible conclusion he could come to. Joseph, we must remember, was deeply versed in the divine scriptures and according to St. Francis de Sales was wiser than Solomon. Not he alone, but others far less enlightened than he was, were anxiously looking at that period for the coming of the Redeemer. That's clear from elsewhere in the Gospels, in particular uh, the Gospel according to Luke chapter 2. All knew, in other words, everyone knew, that the Messiah was to be of the tribe of Judah and the house of David, and all who were familiar with the prophecy of Isaiah must have known that he would be born of a virgin. Moreover, Joseph must have recalled that all, must have recalled all that had preceded and accompanied his espousals with Mary, and that which had taken place in the house of Zachary, of Zachary, whom he had heard declaring by the movement of the Holy Ghost that the child miraculously given to him was to go before the face of the highest must have been fresh in his memory, okay? So think about that, right? If Joseph was along with Mary at the visitation, he knew about the Magnificat, right? He knew about Elizabeth's response to, to Mary. He knew about St. John the Baptist leaping in Elizabeth's womb when Elizabeth was greeted by the Blessed Virgin Mary because she was carrying the Messiah. She was carrying the Lord. Joseph knew all of that, right? And you're going to suppose that he was worried that she was, you know, this was a dalliance on the side that resulted in her pregnancy after they got back from, from the visitation. Um, anyway. Um, 
I have to, okay. Um, so that must have been fresh in Joseph's memory, right? Because it just happened, that, that scene um, of the visitation. Does it not then seem most highly probable that all these signs and tokens combined must have brought wonderful evidence to the mind of Joseph concerning the mystery attached to Mary's state? And not only must we feel this to be highly probable, but it is even difficult to imagine that it could have been otherwise. A thought which in other men might have awakened feelings of self-complacency, pride, and exaltation in the most humble Joseph caused such confusion and what we may call dismay that we may imagine him repeating to himself words such as these, The mother of God, my spouse? The son of the Most High, born in my house? No, such an honor was not for him. His place was not there. Could he, in the face of the world, continue to accept, recognize, and treat Mary as his wife, who had conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost? Could he appear to claim as his son the Holy One who was to be born of her? He shrank with holy consternation from the very idea. In his just mind, such conduct assumed the appearance of acting out in impious falsehood. No, his place was not there. What could he do then but privately depart and go hide himself among the deserts and solitudes of the Jordan, there to weep over his own unworthiness? Such, we may believe, must have been the thoughts which filled Joseph's mind when he made this discovery, and not that distressing alternation of doubts and suspicions of the fidelity of his immaculate spouse, which some pious orators have dwelt upon, causing pain, we cannot but think, to many of their devout hearers. And I am, by the way, going to second that. I, I <laughs> Let me just put it this way. Anyone who preaches that Joseph thought that Mary was unfaithful to him is going to die. That's guaranteed. Not because they preach that, but because we're all going to die. And when they die... Should they be so blessed as to end up in heaven, <laughs> they're going to have to face the Blessed Virgin Mary, having not only believed such a horrible image, but having preached it and caused others to believe it. So good luck to them. We should probably say a Hail Mary for them right now. I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. So anyway, continuing. Maybe I should read. Uh, why don't I read that passage from uh, Matthew? Okay. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, oh, let me just say something. Again, you know, whenever you translate, especially when you translate from a language that comes from one language family into a language which comes from another language family. In other words, translating from French into Italian, you can probably do quite accurately. But Semitic languages have a very, very, very different grammatical structure and actually even use of language. So you're always making decisions when you translate. And I would say that um, this before is 
an example of that. So I would say that a better translation would probably be, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and although they had not come together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to send her away quietly. The text proceeds, whereupon Joseph, her husband, okay, so first of all note, well I'll just read this, here we will pause to notice once more how Joseph is expressly called her husband. What is narrated cannot therefore have taken place in the interval between betrothal and the wedding, as some have maintained. Had this been so, the discovery of Mary's state would have been made by others, not by Joseph, and she could not have been residing with him. Add to this, add to which, that their marriage, which according to this view, took place immediately after the angel's appearance to Joseph, would not have shielded the honor of Our Lady. The birth of Jesus less than six months after their union would have been a circumstance sure not to be forgotten in Nazareth. Okay, so look. Um, in other words, there are lots of reasons why um, this scene had to take place after their nuptials, after they were fully and completely married. Okay, one is Joseph is called her husband in this passage, right? Not her fiancé. Number two, if this had happened in the period between their engagement and their wedding, then the Blessed Virgin Mary would have given birth six months after their wedding, which would have meant that she had been... It would not have saved her from shame because she would have been uh, fornicating, actually, um, with her husband-to-be before he was her husband. So, and yet, um, Joseph is, is talking about... Anyway, so it would not have saved from putting her to shame, and yet the passage says that Joseph did what he did to protect her from being put to shame. Okay, now the legitimacy of his birth was never questioned by his unbelieving countrymen or the slightest slur ever cast upon him or Mary, his mother, by his malicious enemies who would have been sure to avail themselves of any report of this kind had it ever existed, okay? So think of all the people who hated Jesus 30 years later, right? Or 28 years later, right? All the Pharisees and scribes and everything. Do you think they would have kept quiet if... Jesus had been illegitimate. I mean, in other words, if, let me rephrase that. If, if Jesus had been born six months after Mary was married, she would have, he would have been a bastard. And they would have made use of that in their attacks on Jesus. The fact that none of that ever came up is proof that Jesus was born at least nine months after the actual wedding, not simply after the engagement, okay? To continue, 
The evangelist says, whereupon Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing publicly to expose her, was minded to put her away privately, or in other words, separate himself from her and leave her. For the Greek word rendered in the Vulgate by Demetira has this signification that it may off, oh, as may be often seen in Scripture. It is the word, for instance, used in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 19, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother. It's the same verb, dimitera, where assuredly the term could not signify be put away or divorce. Neither can it be the meaning in the case of which we are speaking. Joseph could not have repudiated Mary by a private bill of divorce or any other form without it becoming known and therefore without defaming or publicly exposing her, the very thing which it is said he was not willing to do. Now this is a little bit complicated. Um, because the um, because the common translation is that Joseph, being a just man, was minded to put her away privately. Now, put her away sounds like divorce or send her away. The author here is pointing out that the underlying Latin verb that St. Jerome uses in the translation, dimitera, does not mean put away, or it equally well means leave. And the evidence for that is it's the very same word that's used elsewhere in the Gospels in the passage that says, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. He's not divorcing his father and mother. He's not sending his father and mother away. He's simply leaving his father and mother. And so it's not a good translation from the Latin a better translation would be, whereupon Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing publicly to expose her, was minded to leave her privately. Then again, as regards Joseph being a just man, which is the reason given why he did not act in this manner by his spouse, the text does not say that he was compassionate, it does not say that he was merciful nor does it use any expression which might seem to countenance the idea that there was anything to forgive or condone on his part. It says simply that he was just. Okay, now think about this. Um, that description of Joseph separating from Mary because he didn't want her to be shamed, even though she was unfaithful to him, which is, you know, the contemporary modernist view, that's not a sign that Joseph is just. It's a sign that he's compassionate, that he's merciful, that he's kind, that he's charitable, but not just, because the Jewish law required <laughs> that, frankly, well, I'll just go on with this passage, but you see what I mean? He's violating Jewish law if he does that. So that does not deserve the adjective just. That deserves the adjective like compassionate. But in this sentence, the adjective is just. Now, I'll go on with this reading and you'll see how much sense that makes. Now, the law of Moses did not leave to a man the choice either of retaining his wife, if guilty of adultery, or even of concealing her crime, if it became known to him. If Joseph then did not denounce Mary and was desirous that no suspicion should be directed to her, it is manifest that he did not himself suspect her of infidelity. Otherwise, the epithet just would not have been strictly applicable to him, since he would not have been an exact observer of the law 
in that he sought to conceal the sins of others. Okay? It would have been unjust of Joseph to hide her adultery or her fornication if that was the case. The law would not have allowed him to do that. And yet the passage says he was just, and this was evidence of his justice. So it must have not been for that reason. If, he says, oh, this is now St. Jerome. Now, again, talk about church fathers. You don't get much more church father than St. Jerome. St. Jerome uses this argument in defense of Joseph. This is a quote from St. Jerome. If, he says, it was a precept of the law that not only the guilty, but those who had knowledge of their guilt were under the penalty of sin, how could Joseph, in concealing the sin of his wife, be called just? Close quote. Yet it was precisely because he was just that he would not denounce her, being persuaded that she was innocent and that, if she were with child, it was through the power of God. But if she were innocent, why does he not remain with her? The reason, as we have said, is clear. Having become persuaded from so many signs that she is the mother of the Messiah, he, reckoning himself unworthy to abide under the same roof with her and with the desired of all nations, comes to the determination to leave her privately so that her reputation may remain undamaged. Had he abandoned her publicly, how many questions and suspicions concerning the motives of his behavior would have arisen? Now, having seen that the gospel text, so far from being opposed to the interpretation that we advocate, is favorable to it, we will refer to the fathers. If we are to credit so great a saint and doctor of the Church as St. Bernard, there is a very general agreement among them on the subject. He reasons thus, For what cause did Joseph think of of leaving Mary? Here upon this point, not my opinion, but that of the fathers. Joseph wished to separate himself from Mary for the same reason as made Peter desire to leave the Lord when he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Luke 5 and for which the centurion would dissuade him from coming to his house, saying, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof, in Luke 7. In like manner, Joseph, reputing himself a sinner and unworthy, did not think it fitting to live familiarly with one whose surpassing dignity inspired him with awe. With a sacred dread he beheld in her the indubitable token of the divine presence, And as he could not fathom the mystery, he desired to leave her. Peter was confounded at the greatness of the divine power, the centurion by the majesty of the divine presence, and Joseph also, as a man, was struck with fear at the strangeness of so great a mystery, and therefore was minded privately to leave her. Do you marvel that Joseph, beholding her pregnancy, should esteem himself unworthy to abide with his virgin spouse, when you hear St. Elizabeth, unable to sustain her presence without trepidation and awe, exclaiming, Whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Thus says St. Bernard. Okay? So if St. Elizabeth was in awe and taken aback by even being visited by the mother of the Lord, Joseph was supposed to calmly assume that he belonged in the same picture with the Messiah and the Messiah's mother? Here are St. Thomas's words. 
Holy Joseph pondered in his humility not to continue to dwell with so much sanctity. In other words, St. Joseph in his humility could not accept dwelling with such sanctity until he was told by the angel that he should. Echoing the sentiments of St. Bernard and the other fathers, uh, St. Thomas writes thus, The humility of St. Joseph, as St. Bernard explains, was the cause of his desiring to abandon Our Lady when he perceived her to be with child. St. Bernard says that St. Joseph reasoned thus with himself, within himself. What is this? I know that she is a virgin, for together we took the vow of preserving our virginity and our purity, in which she certainly would not have failed. On the other hand, I perceive that she is with child, that she is a mother. And how can maternity and virginity subsist together? How should not virginity be an obstacle to maternity? Might it be, he then said, that she is that glorious virgin of whom the prophet declares that she shall conceive and bring forth a Messiah? If this is so, far be it from me to abide any longer with her, I who am unworthy to do so. It were better that I should secretly leave her on account of my unworthiness and not live any longer in her company. Marvelous sentiment of humility. Close quote from St. Bernard. So there you have it. I, I hope I convinced you. I hope St. Bernard convinced you. I hope St. Thomas Aquinas convinced you. I hope St. Jerome convinced you. I don't want to, I, I have no authority, but those guys have a lot of authority, okay? So on this wonderful feast day of St. Joseph, what better way to spend this time than to um, defend his honor and even more importantly, the honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary by trying to put the kibosh on that horrible modern interpretation of um, that passage. Well, that's all the time we actually have today. As I just said on the recording, there you have it. Uh, I hope you've been enjoying this. It's uh, really important to understand the dignity and the virtue of St. Joseph, the patron of the church. And you've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Showman. And um, I, all I can say is I, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy. I do hope you enjoyed it. And I hope that you uh, join us again uh, next week for uh, the same time, same place for Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. And um, I'll go out here with a very beautiful um, Gregorian chant in honor of St. Joseph.
Secula secula 